This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us here on the program. I am super, super excited about this episode because we have somebody on the program that I don't know what it was, if it was just fate or whatever, that we just constantly wound up missing one another. I'm not sure exactly why this is, but my entire life, even long before I actually did radio, I've never been able to actually talk to Jeff Sessions. It just, weird things always happen to where he was either out of town. I've even been to D.C. to try to meet him, and it just wound up not working out with our schedule. Met, Met Shelby a few times, never actually got to speak with Senator Jeff Sessions, but tonight that is rectified. Tonight, Jeff Sessions is going to be on the program. We are, of course, going to start with our Alabama coronavirus update, but that is coming up as soon as we're finished with that. So we're going to go ahead and crunch some numbers and look at that, and then we will get directly to Senator Jeff Sessions and talk about his time as the Attorney General and also his bid to win his old Senate seat back. So that will be coming up in very short order. For now, let's go ahead and look at the latest numbers from the Alabama Department of Public Health. When it comes to this virus, you can see right there that we currently have 12,086 confirmed cases, 157,123 have been tested. Sadly, 489 Alabamians have lost their life to COVID-19. And they actually did something a little bit different, which I kind of like, and I'm always a fan of more information whenever it is presented. You may notice that right there, where the you would be accustomed to seeing the hospitalizations, at least that's the way that it had been laid up up until just yesterday, that now you have the total cases in the last 14 days and the people that have been tested in the past 14 days, which is really useful, especially if you're not like me, somebody that looks at these things all the time and is constantly crunching the numbers I mean, the average person, and I understand this, the average person simply does not have time to keep up with those things, and they don't have a giant spreadsheet that they keep on their computer like I do that keeps track of all these things for them and, I mean, constantly updates it every day, which, I mean, even for me, who does this for a living, it can be a real pain to have to keep up with all those records. And so adding a little bit that that helps give some context and gives some idea of how we're doing recently as opposed to just total numbers I think it's something that's really helpful for the average person that comes to this website and and isn't really able to do that deep dive into the statistics. And so that's something that helps. We're actually going to do something very similar here, and we're going to be doing that deep dive and, and providing some context with that as well. So one thing that I thought about, it, and this is something that has been something that's on my mind for a while, whenever we do these weekend wrap-ups, I think that they're useful. And I think that they're good, but I also understand that because they are weekend wrap-ups and because the weekend tends to affect the statistics, in other words, you're going to see patterns, especially with deaths, this is especially true with deaths, but it's also true with confirmed cases, hospitalizations, the rate of testing, all of those things that we typically look like, uh, that we look at in one of our updates, those things are all affected by what time of week it is. And so since that can be somewhat misleading and I want to provide proper context, 
instead of just showing you the raw numbers, I think I'm also going to go through some seven-day averages for each of the statistics that we normally look at. New testing, new cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. And so that'll give us a much more robust picture of how Alabama is doing recently as opposed to just looking at the new day-to-day numbers. And the thing is, we're getting to the point to where comparisons of days or weeks in and of themselves start make sense. Obviously, earlier, that was impossible to do just because the data didn't exist. We didn't have that data. Now we're getting to the point where we can be a little bit more nuanced with that because we have more data to play around with. Let's go ahead and look at the confirmed cases for the state of Alabama. As mentioned just a second ago, we have 12,086 cases. But if you look at the pattern that is developing here, we're actually... Uh, a little bit below average. Actually, overall, we're we're pretty close to average over the weekend. We did have a really really slow Saturday as far as confirmed cases, but the others are throw are floating right around 300 each day, and and that's a little bit up from where it was because you remember about two weeks ago we were talking about the average being somewhere between 100 and, or sorry 200 and 250. Well, now it seems like the pattern over the past few days is we're averaging roughly 300. So that's obviously not an improvement. It's obviously moving in the wrong direction there, but but let's take a look at it. Uh, This week average, so the seven-day average over the past week, has been 254, and last week's average has been 225. Now, that is a difference of plus 29, which means we have 29 more average cases this week than we did last week. And the thing is, that's to be expected. Now, I'm going to get into why I don't think that this makes as big a difference as people are saying that it does. But I do think that at least part of that is that you have people moving around, they're out and about a little bit more, and that's because of the end of the shutdown. Because you may remember, seven days ago today... That was the official end of Alabama's safer-at-home orders that Governor Ivey put out there that mandated by law that you had to do a lot of things. It moved those things from being mandated to more of suggestions, really. And I thought that even though I actually thought it didn't go far enough, there were definitely some steps taken in the correct direction. And so that being said, I think that there were some people that were even somewhat hesitant to do that and to go around and to move about a little bit more freely than they had been until the government told them that it was okay and, and no longer illegal, I think that that made some difference. I don't think it made nearly the difference that people are sort of claiming that it did. But this is something that's to be expected. I mean, if you have people moving around more, then obviously you're going to have more cases when it comes to the virus. But plus 29% each, or sorry, 29%, 29% would actually be pretty significant. But having 29 more cases a day, I mean, you look at that number, 254 a day this week and and 225 last week, that's a jump. But I don't know that it's something that you would necessarily write home about. It's actually not a much bigger jump than we've had previously. If you're comparing previous seven-day periods, and, and this is not the first time we've done this, 29 is actually pretty mild as far as an increase goes. So there was an increase. We expected there to be an increase. Ever since this whole shutdown started, that was the thing that we were talking about is flattening the curve. And then because when we open it up, then you're going to have more people 
getting out there and, and spreading the virus and you're going to have more confirmed cases. Well, well, yeah, we knew that. We knew that going into this. And so that really comes as no surprise. Let's look at the 14-day average. So if you compare the previous two-week period, because remember, 14 days is generally considered the incubation period of this virus. Now, granted, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I do know that based on some of the research that I've done, there has yet to be a case of this virus uh, its incubation period being longer than nine days. So nine days is currently the maximum that we've seen so far, which means that 14 days, I guess they're just erring on the side of caution by calling that the incubation period. I don't know. Maybe just giving some cushion. Again, I'm just really not sure, but that tends to be uh, what the medical community has decided on. And so we're going to use their recommendation 14 days So the 14-day average of the past 14 days is 260. The last 14-day average that we have is 195. Now, that is a pretty significant difference. That is a a pretty big jump in a 14-day period. And so 65-plus on a a daily average between one 14-day period and the next, you know, that's statistically significant. And I think that's because what happened here is the real shutdown actually has been over for about three weeks now. I mean, based on the numbers, based on some of the the data that we've seen as far as people going out and and trying to to do things that they weren't doing beforehand when the lockdown was in the maximum level, because remember, every single state, including Alabama, actually reached its peak of sheltering in place before their state stay-at-home orders were put into place which means ever since really a couple of days, or actually it would have been about a week uh, for Alabama in Alabama's case, for about a week before Governor Ivey even issued the stay-at-home orders, that was when Alabamians hit the maximum level of them staying home according to their travel data. And so that being the case, we have constantly been on a trajectory of more social interaction ever since that date since before the shutdown technically started, at least the legal shutdown, as it were. And so the fact that the numbers are climbing really should come as no surprise. Uh, When you look at tests, and and we'll go ahead and look at the new testing, we've been talking about how testing has been up, but not a significant amount. And you'll see there that the testing was actually pretty, pretty grim there, on today and yesterday, we, we've not had a ton of new testing reporting, but the days beforehand have been a significant uptick, and so that's part of it. Let's go ahead and look at their seven-day average. So this week's average of new testing per day has been 3,415. Last week, 3,120. So that's a plus 295 tests per day comparing those two weeks back-to-back. Now, here's the interesting thing. They keep talking about testing being up, and and Dr. Harris and Kay Ivey have talked about the testing increasing. But if you're looking at daily tests compared, the 14-day average is actually down. Our 7-day average, we've gone up. We we had more this week than we had last week. But if you're looking at your 14-day average, this current 14-day period had an average daily testing of 3,537, And the previous 14-day period, going back to uh, the 21st, April 21st, that period would put us at 3,909. 
So we actually lost 372 daily tests from the previous 14-day period to the current 14-day period. In other words, 14 days immediately into our past. And so, yeah, our testing has been up over the past week, but it's actually been down over the past two weeks in comparing those periods. And then there's hospitalizations. Of course, that's really important because that was really what the whole shutdown was for, right? Is to make sure that we didn't have too many people flooding our medical system. And so these are the hospitalizations. You'll see that they are significantly down and significantly below what we've come accustomed to seeing. And even if you factor in the weekend as a, as a factor, it's even lower than most weekends. So our hospitalization overall is down. And by the way, our seven-day period actually bears that out as well. This week's average, granted not a lot, was 18 more hospitalizations per week compared to the previous week. That's 19. So we have one less person hospitalized per day over the past week than we did the week before. So moving in the right direction. Granted, one's not a ton, but averaging one less person hospitalized a day, that, that makes a big difference. And of course, it makes a difference to the Alabamians who are affected by that. It means we are moving in the right direction. And if you look at the 14-day average, it's even more significant. So this previous 14 days has given us a daily average of 21. The period before that, the 14 days before our most recent 14-day period, was 26. That's a difference of minus 5. So we're having 5 less people in this 14-day period hospitalized than the previous 14-day period. And then finally, let's go ahead and look at the deaths that have been caused by COVID-19 in Alabama you can see there that our average is significantly down. And again, weekend makes a big difference here because whether it be in Alabama or nationwide, we have to remember that deaths are always down for the coronavirus on the weekend. I have no idea why. That's just the way that it is. And I'm sure that they'll come up with some kind of scientific explanation for it at some point, but so far nobody has been able to really figure that one out. But for whatever reason, that is the case. So, Looking at our, our deaths, looking at how many Alabamians have lost their lives to this disease, this week's average was 9. Last week's average was 14. So we're actually doing significantly better in the this week than we have the last week. I mean, that's a, a significant cut. I mean, having five less people die a day because of this thing in a seven-day period... That's really good to see that our deaths are down. And now let's look at our 14-day average. The 14-day average for this 14-day period is 12, and the 14-day average from the pr previous two weeks is 11. So it's basically it's neck and neck, and I did round to the nearest whole number, but the numbers are actually a little bit closer. It's a little bit under one person. And so if you're looking at our overall average over the past month, this most recent 14-day period, 12, the one directly before it, 11. So that has gone up some, but to such a small degree, it's barely even statistically significant, if, if it is at all. And the important thing to understand there, too, is these numbers are even better when you consider that the number of cases are going up. 
you see, if you look at that 14-day comparison in a vacuum, you might say, okay, it's, it's not much, but the death rate actually is going up. Well, no, the death rate is going down because we're having more confirmed cases. So that's actually something that is a good thing. Because if we're having more confirmed cases and our deaths are staying roughly the same, that means the death rate is going down. Our fatalities are going down, and that's something that certainly is good news. And when you consider that, that more people are moving around, that more people are getting out, and now the state is not shut down, then in the seven days since that happened, we've actually had a significant decrease in coronavirus deaths. I mean, that's a really good thing. Now, granted, deaths are a lagging statistic. And what that means is, to get a more realistic picture of how deaths have been doing since the official confirmed ending of the shutdown, again, I don't think that the, the official end of the shutdown really makes that big a difference in human behavior, and I've talked about that a lot on this show. But if we're going to go by that, and we're going to go by how effective the shutdown was in preventing deaths, uh, so far, shutdown, uh, no shutdown is beating shutdown by a country mile. Now, if you're looking at it over all the past month, that's different, but you have to remember that that's not a good measure of how well the shutdown is working because for one week in our previous 14-day period, the shutdown was still in effect and it was there for the entirety of that. So I think what we'll do is we'll have another two-week comparison when we come back on Monday and see where the numbers line up. And, and the fact that that is a lagging statistic might actually shed a little bit of light on it. I was fully anticipating, to be perfectly honest, that the death that the number of deaths were going to go up once the shutdown ended just because there would be more people moving around, there'd be more people getting sick, and as an effect, you would also have more people dying. I thought that making that comparison and looking at the numbers and saying, well, we've got to open up. We can't stand this economically any longer, and it's a, a violation of constitutional rights. I mean, there were a myriad of reasons why I thought you should have ended the shutdown, but I was never a proponent of, nor did I ever say, that we're not going to see an increase in cases and deaths, because I expected there would be. Turns out there's an increase in cases, but so far not an increase in deaths, not an increase in hospitalizations. In fact, the statistics are actually going in the opposite direction when it comes to that. And that's one thing that makes this quote by Dr. Scott Harris, who was interviewed by Alabama political reporter, even more troubling. So they were talking about specifically the amount of confirmed cases. And he said this, quote, I would say that we're really concerned. The numbers are not headed in the right direction, especially some parts of the state. Okay, if you want to talk about some hot zones of the state, including the capital city, which Scott Harris has talked about as a potential hot zone for the virus. And, and I mean, I'm all open to, to hearing that conversation, but you can't really say that the numbers are not headed in the right direction when out of these things, the only one that is headed in the wrong direction, if you're comparing the previous seven days and the previous 14 days, are the number of, of cases, and I don't even know that that's necessarily a bad thing. Like I said, the more confirmed cases we have, as long as our death rate, or as long as the total amount of our deaths remains about the same or even goes lower as it has in the previous week, that's actually a positive because that means the virus is less fatal than we thought. And another thing, too, the purpose of the shutdown was never to keep people from getting coronavirus. If you're looking at those graphs that we saw until we were sick of them, you'll notice that the big spike that we always saw compared to that little hump, it was the same amount of people getting sick. 
the flattening the curve narrative, which I agreed with, by the way, because I didn't want to overwhelm our healthcare system either, was never that less people are going to get it. It was, if we can keep everybody from getting it at once, it won't overwhelm the system. Well, based on the numbers, we've pretty much done that. I mean, we're more or less already there. I'm not saying that the virus is over and everybody needs to go out and do whatever they want. I'm saying exercise caution and be smart about it, obviously. But as far as flattening the curve, we pretty much accomplished that goal. And even though I fully expected the hospitalizations and the deaths to increase once everybody started moving around, the stats have shown the, actu- the exact opposite, actually. I was expecting that number to go up, and it didn't. And if it had gone up, I would have still said we should, it, we should not have a government-mandated shutdown. But lo and behold, they've actually been very positive. And so I'm kind of confused by what Dr. Scott Harris, the chief health officer for the state of Alabama, is saying there because I don't know if he's just unaware of the statistics or he hasn't analyzed them in this specific way or he was just focusing on cases and ignoring hospitalizations, ignoring deaths. But either way, I think that this quote by him definitely sends out the wrong message. And it's definitely, at the, at the very least, at its most benign, somewhat misleading. But ultimately, I think that these numbers are really good. It's a good, it's something to be optimistic about in a time where we haven't had a whole lot of good news. And I think that that definitely is a positive that it looks like we are definitely on the downward trend of this thing. So we, you know, hopefully we're kind of seeing, we're not only seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, we're getting to the part of the tunnel to where we can kind of see what's outside. I mean, we're we're getting really close to this thing being more or less uh, nothing more than a, a bad flu season at this point. And it looks like we've basically accomplished our mission in flattening the curve. So uh, continue to be vigilant, just like the governor was recommending today, which Again, I don't like the official legal shutdown, but I have no problem with the governor advising people on on this, and I think that's actually something she should do. So props to everybody for doing the best that you can to try to keep this thing under a certain level for not overwhelming our healthcare system. It looks like that has been more or less accomplished, and as long as we continue to stay safe and, and practice some common sense things, then you know we'll be able to get back to life as normal really before too long, based on what I'm seeing, I was actually kind of surprised at how well these comparisons came out, but it seems as though that is what's going on. So something else to be excited about, something else to look forward to. We're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, we will be here with Senator Jeff Sessions, former Senator of Alabama, former attorney general of the state of Alabama. And he's going to lay out the case for why you should vote for him to be your next Senator, the new Senator from Alabama and fulfill that old role of his once again. That is coming up in just a second. We will be right back with Jeff Sessions. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us through the break. We're going to go ahead and go to a guest whom I have actually never had on my show, but have always wanted to, been an admirer of his for a long time. And uh, I'm sure that you're wanting to hear from him now because, of course, he is running for Alabama's Senate seat to represent the great state of Alabama in the United States Senate, as he's actually already done for many years. We welcome on to the program for the very first time former Senator and Attorney General of the United States, Jeff Sessions. Welcome to the program. 
Hey, Caleb. It's good to be with you in Montgomery land. Yeah, it's great to be with you. And one thing that I've actually wanted to to ask you uh, to get this thing started, uh, what do I call you? Do I call you AG Sessions? Do I call you Senator Sessions, Mr. Sessions? Because you've held a lot of titles over the years. Which one do you prefer? Well, most people call me uh, Jeff, uh, that's for sure. Um, so um, my campaign people like Senator. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it makes sense, and that's what they're pushing for, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, you, certainly uh, Attorney General and, and uh, Senator are great honors to be called that, and I did serve as Attorney General of Alabama, too. Right, and a lot of people kind of forget that, but that's that's – sort of where you got your start politically. So, uh, I, sorry, I go ahead. In Huntington College and taught school a year in Montgomery. And so um, we watched, grew up with Montgomery advertising and Montgomery media down in the country land of Camden. Yeah, well, I mean, you've uh, been in the capital city quite a bit over the years. And Attorney General is actually kind of where I want to get started with you today because, uh, of course, we're going to be talking about your campaign and we, we want to get that out there. But I think that your time as Attorney General can be very informative as to your qualifications on that. And so I'd like to go ahead and start out with the first couple of questions being about your tenure as the Attorney General of the United States. And one issue that I know is at the forefront of voters' minds is, of course, border enforcement. And you have been on the front lines of this fight since before the fight was even really happening. I mean, you were the guy on the wall sounding the alarm since long before most Republicans were even talking about how big an issue this is. And, and there's no question, after the Obama administration, I mean, there was an intentional dismantling of our border enforcement. And you had to come in as attorney general and do a complete 180 on that, because even in previous Democrat administrations like the Clinton administration, uh, they may not have been as hawkish on the border as you, for example, but they certainly were were not openly opposed to uh, or openly opposed to border enforcement. And so with you coming in and having to do a complete 180 on that, how did you handle that and, and how did you really, uh, you know, make a. Uh, both a statement and also the, the actual enforcement of that? Well, it was a challenge, no doubt about it. Uh, of course, one of the reasons I was such an early supporter, the first Senate supporter of Donald Trump, mm -hmm. was he made clear uh, that he was not fooling around about the border. He mm -hmm. wanted to build a wall, and he wanted to end the illegality, help us create a system that um, could America could be proud of instead of... Uh, this lawless system that we've had so long. And so as Attorney General, uh, we backed him uh, 100% in all those items. Most of the work, of course, is done by Border Patrol and our ICE officers who uh, are part of the Homeland Security. But the Attorney General had a number of roles in it. Uh, I note, Caleb, that the ICE Officers Association, the Immigration Customs and Enforcement officers, their police law enforcement officers, mm -hmm. endorsed me uh, um, several months ago and said I was the number, their number one supporter in all of Congress. That includes 100 senators and 435 House members. I think that's true. Over the years, I backed them. We fought to try to end the illegality to close the loopholes. So as Attorney General, I learned even more about the loopholes and the difficulties we challenged how we had to support our ICE officers and our Border Patrol, 
I declared a zero-tolerance policy, which basically was to say to our Homeland Security colleagues, we will prosecute, we at the Department of Justice will prosecute every case you bring to us. It's more than just catching somebody, releasing them on bail. Uh, They need to be held and promptly prosecuted, and we increased dramatically that. I doubled almost, well, more than doubled now the number of immigration judges that are part of the Department of Justice, and we advocated for legislation and policies that the president wanted to see done uh, to actually uh, begin to be more effective. So my view, Taylor, is that we have an opportunity with the re-election of President Trump, which I think is likely to happen, to be successful in closing those loopholes, to get that wall built, to back our Border Patrol and our ICE officers and end illegality substantially in this country. It's a moment of great importance. It would be historic. If we don't get it done now, we may never get it done. I'm confident I can contribute to that, and I'm confident my opponent doesn't understand it. Well, I mean, you have been contributing to it for a number of years. Like I said, long before you were AG in the Senate, if you wanted to talk to somebody who knew about border enforcement, you went to Jeff Sessions. I mean, uh, there were there were things that, just like every other senator, you and I didn't always see eye to eye on, and that's perfectly okay. But on border enforcement, I mean, you, you were the guy in the Senate, and, and I expect that, you know, there's no reason to believe that you've changed on that, especially with the work that you did as Attorney General that that would absolutely be true. And I think people sometimes forget, and I'd like for you to speak on this a little bit as well, uh, how important that law enforcement side of it is, because a lot of what was going on in the Obama administration was they were rounding people up and they were processing them, but they were also saying, okay, well, we're just going to basically take your word on it and you have to be back before a judge at this date. And one of the things that you just talked about was increasing the level of judges. and, And the thing is, the left is trying to pivot the conversation on this to people that are uh, refugees or or people that have a legitimate sanctuary claim. Well, the increasing of things like judges and the administrative stuff that your administration did, that actually helps those people. Well, that's right, Caleb. Uh, uh, Let me tell you what's been happening. It's... um, even under the Obama administration, many of the judges were appointed by their administration, but 85% of the asylum claims were denied. Uh, and uh, these are not legitimate asylum claims. Mm-hmm. There's no basis for somebody in Mexico to claim that they, they can't live in Mexico. Well, there's a gang nearby. Well, there's a, Mexico's a big country. You don't have to you don't get the right to demand you want to go to Belgium because uh, there's a drug gang in your neighborhood. Right. You move to a place else in, in Mexico. I mean, this is what the law is. And uh, so they were pouring across the border, uh, would be apprehended. Actually, they will turn themselves into the uh, Border Patrol people. Mm-hmm. They will then be released on bail, catch and release. That's what it is. They're asked to come back to a hearing. And many of them don't and those that do you know what happens to them let's say they're part of the 85 percent that gets denied right then uh they're released on bail again and told to come back to a certain date so they can be deported well then they got a free shot at the apple they get asylum or they don't and then if they don't they just stay in unlawfully 
uh, it is it's a cl- horrible thing, and it's just a mockery of law, and it's an embarrassment to a great nation like the United States. We have borders. Our Constitution doesn't apply in Mexico, and theirs right. doesn't apply in the United States. To admit it, be admitted to our country, you have to ask for permission. You have to have a permission to, to enter. And we have mechanisms for that, and millions cross the border every day. But the people who are illegal, many of them have criminal records, uh, come across the border unlawfully and try to get away with it. So I just, to me, it goes against everything I was raised with as a good Alabama, uh, you know, just person. You follow the rules. You wait your turn. Uh, we admit 1.1 million to permanent legal residents every year. We're an exceedingly generous nation, but we cannot con- continue to tolerate this illegality. Well, and I think that's what it really boils down to. And the reason that this message has hit a nerve with people and, and in large part, not the only reason, but in large part wound up being sort of the main reason that Donald Trump got elected specifically goes back to the idea that American citizens, whether they're on the right or the left or where their political leanings are, they're looking at this system and they're saying, well, now, wait a second. If I had, a, you know, some kind of traffic violation, the government wouldn't be nearly as soft handed with me, especially when you're talking about the very crime that they are committing. You're releasing them knowing that they're going to continue committing that crime, at least with the traffic violation. If you just let somebody off, there is at least a hope that maybe they won't commit that violation again they're being released specifically to continue to violate the law. And, and the judges were doing that, knowing that. And I think that's the reason that uh, really the, the average citizen looked at that and said, well, why is the, the government treating the non-citizen better than the citizen? I, I really do think that's the reason that it resonated. I, yeah. Let me just say one more thing about it. It's so important. Uh, there is on, in the Democratic Party and maybe some there's some softies in the Republican Party. You want to know the truth. Mm-hmm. The battles I fought, the three big battles over amnesty, and one each time, always had a Democrat or Republican support. The first one involved President Bush supported it. Mm-hmm. John McCain and all that crowd, uh, and then it's come back twice each time and have been able to defeat it. But I led the fight all three times. Uh, We mastered the details. We were able to expose the flaws in the bill and why it would not work and why it guaranteed amnesty but would not produce uh, lawfulness in the system. More people would come illegally expecting themselves to get amnesty, too. But I wanted to mention this. The left is totally open borders. This is an unthinkable, radical policy. The bill that the Democrats just passed in the House provided this governmental relief money to illegal aliens. Yep. Give me a break. I mean, the first thing you do to stop illegal uh, immigration into America is stop sending them checks. I mean, what kind of message does that send? And then you have the deal that somebody breaks into the country unlawfully, goes into Houston, or not Houston, but uh, let's say Los Angeles or San Francisco, commits a serious crime, Mm -hmm. and they provide sanctuary to them. They will not let an illegal immigrant who is, who is subject to being deported immediately, who then commits another criminal offense, be turned over to the ICE officers so they can be deported. It's just unthinkable. So I think politically, Caleb, 
Mm. We need to make sure every American knows. This is the only way it's going to be settled, and that's with public opinion. They need to know just how radical the Democratic policies are, that it's unsustainable. And the only theory behind it is anybody that breaks into the country unlawfully uh, is entitled to stay here forever and receive all the welfare benefits that Americans get. It's just an unthinkable, uh, unjustifiable policy, and it's got to be fought against both publicly and substantively. Well, I, I couldn't agree more, and I think any time that you start treating the non-citizen, that you start extending to them more rights than the citizen has, then you've obviously messed up your priorities as a country. But I want to pivot real quickly. Uh, one more thing before we leave your, your time at the Attorney General's office. Uh, when that was going on, your DOJ had to do another complete 180, not only on border enforcement, but also on matters regarding religious liberty. And that's something that I'm really concerned with as a minister myself. I know that that's something that is incredibly important to the people of Alabama, being a state right here in the Bible Belt. And uh, you had to really, I mean, completely turn the uh, how the DOJ stance was on some cases and, and where they were for some and then against some. Uh, when it came to your administration having to come in and, and completely change that. And so uh, give us some details on that and maybe mention a couple of cases that your Department of Justice was, was working on then. Well, thank you, Caleb. Uh, this is an unappreciated thing. Americans by the millions, church-going people by millions, were horrified at the hostility that the federal government was beginning to display over a growing number of years against people of faith and their ability to exercise their faith. For example, the little sisters of the poor did not want to uh, provide money for an abortion pill. They, it was against their faith, and they refused to do it. And they were ordered to by the uh, administration, the Obama administration, and they filed a lawsuit to defend themselves. Mm -hmm. And the Obama administration fought them every step of the way. But we reevaluated that case when I became Attorney General. We believe that was clearly within their constitutional right to uh, freely exercise their religion. In the Constitution, the First Amendment provides every American the right to free exercise of their religion. Uh, we believe that they, they should be able to, they should be left alone. We, we stopped that, we, we settled that lawsuit. We acknowledged they were correct, even had to pay them some attorney's fees. Mm -hmm. And that another big deal was the, the baker, the cake baker, Jack Phillips in Colorado, who did not believe and did not, it, he felt strongly that he should not be forced to participate in a wedding he didn't believe in. Right. Against his faith. And he would not do it. And so the full power of the state came down on him, and he went all the way to the Supreme Court. And we flipped sides on that, and we joined with Jack Phillips uh, and won in the Supreme Court that he could, he could not be made to do that. And then you had a case in, in California. The radicals there said that a pro-life uh, center had to put up a sign saying where you could go to get an abortion. And they said this is making us speak you are forcing us to speak against what we believe, and we're not putting the sign in our, our abortion pro-life center. And we joined with them uh, in, in their lawsuit and won that. We also wrote a policy uh, 
that a detailed policy to contain some of the secular forces in our federal government from harassing church people, and it received a great deal of support in the Christian legal community. Uh, it represented a sea change in some of the things that were happening. So I am proud of it. I'm glad you mentioned that, Caleb. Well, uh, I, I do think the way you started that out is correct, is that it's underappreciated. I'm, I'm sorry, repeat that. You were breaking up a little bit. I uh, said, so, yeah, thank you. And uh, a lot of people probably did not know uh, that how strong a stand we took on that and the fact that we uh, were successful. It was a major change. Well, it's it's one of the issues that I know my audience absolutely resonates with, and, and I do think that it's important to the people of Alabama. Uh, one thing that I, I wanted to talk to you about, because uh, you and, and President Trump and, and your relationship with him, uh, this is my perception, and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong. This is just how I analyzed it. So, you know, I'm, I'm an outsider looking in. I'd, I'd like to get your take on this. Uh, the way that I always told people about the somewhat turbulent relationship you sometimes had with, with President Trump was that even though you guys agree on 90% of the issues, I would say, I think where a lot of the, the personality clashes come from is that President Trump, it, though he may be a law and order kind of guy, he's not really much of a rule by the book follower, and, and you're the exact opposite of that, which is exactly what you want in an attorney general, and it's a good quality to have in an attorney general. But you know President Trump, at least, again, this is my perception of him, you actually know the man, so I want you to tell me if I'm wrong. He, he's kind of a just-get-it-done, even if you have to fudge the rules a little bit, and you're a by-the-book guy. Do, do you think that's a fair analysis and might explain some of the reasons that that you had some, you know, personal differences on how to handle some things? <laughs> well, maybe uh, a little bit, but I am a big believer uh, in its important constitutionally, mm -hmm. in what scholars refer to as the unified executive. Uh, the, the president is the is the source of all executive power. He is right. the center of all executive power, and all of his cabinet members should serve the president and help him achieve his goals. And the attorney general, uh, as attorney general, the things we've mentioned, the immigration and uh, religious freedom, they were all supported by President Trump. Our crime policies, our cutting regulations, our uh, mm -hmm. all kinds of other policies. So we, we believe in supporting that. And if the president wanted to achieve something, our lawyers would try to help him figure out a way to do it lawfully, and, and so it becomes, in fact, law and doesn't get blocked by some court. So, yeah, we did have that single disagreement over recusal. Sure. Uh, the law was clear, and I felt uh, it just mandated, and it's you know, shown out today. Uh, uh, not only was I an official in his campaign, I don't think there was any other public... Uh, elected public official in America that had a title in the campaign. I was national security uh, chairman mm -hmm. of the National Security Committee, which some of these complaints dealt with, Russia dealt with. They accused me of wrongdoing. They, uh, I was a witness to some of the things that uh, happened. So not, I was a witness, I was accused, and I was the, an official in the campaign, and the law of the department was clear. Uh, but you can't investigate yourself. Right, you and that, there's one thing... Me ...and our campaign, the things that we did mm -hmm. together, and 
Um, but, but so it was so painful and so frustrating for him. I, I mean, this man is so strong. He's been gifted with strengths that I'm not seeing in other people. And he does not um, take frustrations lightly. And sure. he keeps pushing. And it's just one of those things that we were not able to uh, accord. But I, it did, the matter finally got cleared up. He was uh, absolutely exonerated. Nobody even mentions Russia now, and uh, we're on the uh, we're on the way to seeing him reelected, and uh, he'll, he'll certainly have Alabama support and my support, uh, and my support in the Senate if I return. Well, and that's one thing that a lot of the people, because I've talked to a lot of voters about this, and there there are two main criticisms of you as a candidate, and that of course is one of them. They they say that you shouldn't recuse. I, I've said for a long time that uh, based on what we know now. If you had not recused, you would have actually been in violation of not one, but actually two federal laws. And we learned that, especially after the Mueller report actually came out. I don't know if you just weren't able to talk about it before then or or what, but when that came out, we found out actually you were the target of the investigation and found out, what was it, just two or three days before you announced your, your, your recusal? that you were actually a target of that investigation and because of that you had to recuse. And that was something we didn't know really until the Mueller report came out and, and that really helped shed some light on your decision. Well, yeah, and that's true. And um, it's just, um, th- th- that's the way it, it happened. And as um, I was briefed on the matter and, uh, you know, it was clear to me that the clear statute required me to, uh, not supervise the investigation of which I was subject and, and a witness and uh, and a part of the campaign. Fundamentally, you cannot investigate a ca- campaign that you have a role in. And I had a role in it. So just day one, uh, that was uh, out there. So, yes, um, I'm glad it looks like this is finally over. I'm totally supportive of Attorney General Barr. Uh, He's uh, getting to the bottom of it. Uh, I really believe that that's important. I do not believe this matter can end until the American people know how it all happened. And I think it's uh, the best way to save and reform and strengthen the FBI and the Department of Justice is to get to the bottom of it. Whatever wrongdoing people are punished for, it's all brought out so the public sees it. Only then can you really reform an agency it'll never be effective if you don't find out what the truth is so i i do think that he's doing the right thing there for sure we want to see the department of justice uh rise to the highest possible level uh, where there's discipline within it and you don't have people like um jim comey i I think he set a really bad tone I, i worried about it from what i knew about him before I became attorney general. I, I never thought he should be kept. The president was wrongly criticized for making the final decision to remove him uh, uh, several months later. But uh, there was ample justification for it. And what we've seen oh, now... Oh, in retrospect, I think you should have got rid of Comey like the second day he was in office. Well, that was my view. And um, I had done some background on it and a number of different things that caused me great concern. Uh, they were leaking like a sieve. Uh, They were uh, uh, violating rules and procedures. He'd become arrogant, 
didn't think the rules were applied to him. And as the months go by, that became even more clear that what I concluded before I became attorney general in the investigation of Flynn and sending those wit- those investigators in, that occurred before I became attorney general. I didn't know about that at the time, of course. Right. And But we'd already seen too much. And, and what we've seen since, like taking notes of a meeting with the president of the United States and then leaking those notes to a mm-hmm. friend deliberately uh, is unthinkable for a disciplined, re- responsible FBI director. It's just unthinkable to me. And he had a political agenda when he did it. So I, I just, you know, so sorry to get fired up on that one. But no, I, I understand. And I got to say... It's got to be fixed. Yeah, and and personally, I've got to say this from from my own perspective. I owe Michael Flynn an apology because with everything that that we knew coming out and the information that we had at the time, I really thought that he was was one of the bad actors and that President Trump had had brought him in uh, in in a way that I thought was incorrect and he just made a bad call on that one. Uh, but but I got to say, the more that we found out, the, the more that we have learned about this thing as it goes on, it appears as though uh, Michael Flynn and, and the allegations against him were made out of complete whole cloth. And, and that's surprising to me because I was on the other side of this argument when this debate was going on. And so I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit to that and, and maybe how your successor, uh, William Barr, has handled that. Um, why is this an issue that is so incredibly important to the the American people to make sure that justice is served here? Look, um, I don't know all the things that went on there, uh, even to this day. I don't, I just don't have it. Sure. But what I know is that what, what they did was wrong in taking, unmasking these, uh, these uh, ta- tapes or intercepts uh, that Flynn was involved in, uh, that's improper unless you have a national security reason for it. Sure. And most of these people didn't. What, 38 people did? Why in the world uh, was Joe Biden in the last few days of his tenure in the White House as vice president, why was he uh, asking for these uh, intercepts mm-hmm. from Flynn? There was no national security basis for it, and the same with 37 others, probably, that were involved in it. So I, I think that was important. Secondly, uh, it looks like the president was, Obama was present, uh, was possessing the very documents. He'd studied them. He shocked Deputy Attorney General at the time, his deputy, uh, Sally Yates, by knowing so much about these tapes. She was shocked uh, about it. And the next thing you know, that an investigation of Flynn that was to be closed uh, was kept open because the president personally met with Yates and with uh, Comey, mm-hmm. and, and they discussed Flynn. And the president, if you remember, Caleb, one bit of advice he gave to Trump was to not hire Flynn. And there was no doubt about it that um, Flynn was not on the inside with the Obama theory of international relations and President Trump liked Flynn, and he, that's who he wanted as his national security advisor. He gets to pick his national security advisor, not Barack Obama or 
Joe Biden or, or Jim Comey. Right, in so the they, same way that President Bush doesn't get to pick President that, Obama's national security advisor. Repeat that. Uh, I said in the same way that President Bush doesn't get to pick Barack Obama's national security advisor. That's not something the previous president gets to decide. Right. We need to accommodate to the fact that the president who's elected by the people to carry out an agenda and national security is his agenda and uh, he needs to be able to pick his aides as he thinks will help him achieve what he believes is right for America. So, yeah, that was a uh, a big deal there, and uh, it, the, what they did to him by sending them in, I think, is fairly called a setup. I think they set him up. They should have called the White House counsel like they always do before they inter- interview a top official. They never gave uh, President Trump any warning that uh, if they thought um, Flynn was bad, they should have warned the president. They never did that. Uh, they were determined to get Flynn and maybe go from there. So it was not a healthy thing. Um, there were leaks everywhere, totally improper leaks. Uh, these uh, unmaskings, they were leaked regularly. A plain crime. I hope they figured out who leaked some of this stuff and some people go to jail for that. So that's the kind of thing that uh, I believe we're moving past. Uh, we've got a good uh, team uh, now the president has and that mm-hmm. I think will show discipline and help him achieve uh, the agenda for which he was elected. Well, I, I do certainly hope that comes to, to pass. And, and you may remember I, I told you a couple minutes ago that there are two primary criticisms that I hear about you as a candidate, and the first was, the, of course, the whole matter with your recusal. I'd like for you real quickly to address the second one, which is uh, there are a lot of people that, that don't necessarily hold that against you, uh, people that even in my own family that, that still like you think that you're a, a fantastic former senator and attorney general, but at the same time, they think that they should go with somebody younger, somebody that hasn't been in Washington for you know multiple decades like you have. And so I'd, I'd like for you to just speak to that for a moment. Well, thanks, Caleb. Uh, look, um, if I had gone soft it, as your senator, if I had uh, let the politically correct crowd tell me what to do, the Washington Post and CNN and all that crowd, if I had been... Uh, captive by the big business, the Zuckerbergs in the Silicon Valley and Wall Street. Uh, if I hadn't defended our values uh, on a regular basis, whether it's lawful system of immigration, they raised a billion dollars in the last battle over immigration. Every lobbyist in Washington was bought. Who was the number one fighter? Me. Uh, and the same with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that trade agreement. Uh, I led the fight on that. We only had five no votes. The first vote, five out of 100 senators, Senator Shelby and uh, Rand Paul and Ted Cruz and Susan Collins and I. That's who it was. That, that's a uh, weird thing to throw so, Susan Collins in there. I didn't know that she was one of the votes. Well, she's a Mainer, and Maine, I uh, believe, has always had a tradition of, of defending American manufacturing hmm. against unfair trade. But, uh, look, that's the way it was. So I led that fight, and then I led the fight to uh, on support Trump. Uh, but look, I'll say this about my opponent, okay? Okay. He knows nothing. He brags about knowing nothing, but 
uh, he's not a spring chicken himself. He's 65, and he's going to walk in there. He's never made a political speech in in his life prior to this announcement, I think. Uh, He gave not a dime to Donald Trump. He never said a kind word about Donald Trump. He never uh, endorsed Donald Trump. Uh, And any other Republican or conservative, to my understanding. And so, uh, look, when when you hit the uh, floor of the United States Senate, and we're having to fight for and debate for against Schumer and against Bernie Sanders and against Elizabeth Warren. I know how to do it. I've been doing it. I have done it. I know those people. I know how they operate. I have not sold out the values of the people of Alabama. I'm the same person I was before, and uh, I'll be the uh, – look, it's just – it would be – it's more than just casting a vote, you know? Sure. Going to say, well, I'm going to vote for the wall. Okay. Well, how do you fight for the wall? How do you get votes? You don't just sit down with somebody and, and, and smooth them. You really need to move public opinion. You need to show the loopholes and, and weaknesses and necessity of this. Advocate it. Go on television. Make speeches. One year, I think 14 of 2015, I spoke more on the floor of the Senate than any other senator. You don't need a potted plant in Washington. You need somebody who will stand up and fight for what we believe in and not embarrass us by making silly things, saying silly things. So I, I, I feel like at this point in time, I'm ready. I feel good. I know what the issues are. We'll have tremendous possibilities to reset our relationship with China. I know a lot about that. Tommy Turbo has been very weak on that. Uh, he, he said the president's wrong to stand up to China some months ago, and, and he said that uh, we can't do anything about China now. No, no, no. Now's the time. Now's the momentum time for the whole world, and it's happening. What I've been saying for weeks is happening. Australia, African nations, European nations are beginning to push back against China for the first time because they, they're such a totalitarian, communist, atheistic government and they're not like canada and you have to treat them much much differently and we have to defend our interest and protect our american manufacturing and our medical supplies and those kind of things so we're i believe that there's an opportunity here uh, to get some great things done and i'm not sure my opponent's ready for the fight well my my last question that i want to get to before we move on uh, today is actually along the same lines. You did a perfect segue into it because we're talking about Chinese things, so let's talk about the coronavirus. Uh, with your what the Senate is doing right now, and of course you know that the House just passed a $3 trillion bill that now goes to the Senate, uh, how would you rate the Senate's handling of this so far with the uh, initial stimulus package, with the, the package that they're doing now that looks like it's going to be dead on arrival. How would you rate Mitch McConnell and the other Senate Republicans, and, and would you follow suit, or there's things that you would do differently? Just speak to that to us for just a moment. Are you talking about not China, but the uh, basic relief bill? That- right. Basically, the legislation that, that the Senate has done in response to that, would you have handled it differently? Do you think they're doing a pretty good job? Where, where do you stand on that? Well, it was a, a catastrophe, a total national emergency, um, and uh, we've never seen anything like such a dramatic 
impact on the American economy and jobs. And so I supported uh, the general concept. Uh, I was proud that the Republicans, more than they usually do, exposed the Democrat left-wing agenda that they tried to tack on to the bill. You get a bill like that that really needs to pass, it needs to pass soon. American people are in need of it immediately, and they start demanding we won't pass it unless you have vote by mail and if you do all these other liberal things. Yeah, funding for Planned Parenthood. Yeah. Fight back, but it wasn't perfect. But they, uh, there are some things I didn't like. I like, do you, do you know that a government employee making less than $75,000 a year, not about to lose their job, got the $1,200 check? Right. Um, and uh, there wasn't sufficient control over keeping it from going to illegal aliens. There were all kinds of problems out there that. Uh, that speed probably made it hard to do. But now we have some more time. This next bill cannot be the one that's, uh, that Nancy Pelosi moved out of the House. This one cannot pass uh, the way it is. For example, it has money for illegal aliens. Right. It's just full of things like that that's got to be stopped. All right. Well, let's say that there is somebody that has, has heard what you've been saying. They like what they hear. They want to support you. They want to learn more about you as a candidate. Where would they go to do that? JeffSessions.com, uh, the, the right place to go. Um, I think you and we're trying to, and are in fact, uh, being um, thoughtful and aggressive and laying out on our Facebook and uh, sites and Twitter my views on important issues like China and how it's all developing. So we'd like for people to know that, uh, my views are Alabamians' views. I grew up in this state. I didn't just pass through. I grew up here. For 18 years, I went to every county in this state every year. Uh, I educated here. My family goes back uh, generations, all of them. All my grandparents were here mm-hmm. over 150 years ago. And so I just would say I, I think I know our values. They're my values. I know my people in Alabama. Uh, I I just think that we can make some real progress in the next uh, few years helping President Trump, who's advocating our values, and let's go get them. I'm ready. All right, Senator. Well, thank you so much for being generous with your time and speaking to us. We appreciate it and certainly do wish you the best. Thank you, Caleb. Nice to talk to you. Yes, sir. Good to talk to you as well. That is, of course, Senator Jeff Sessions, a former senator, and now running back for his same seat that he originally held and then moved on, of course, to become the Attorney General of the United States. We thank him so much for being here on the program with us, and and hopefully you've found this informative. We will be back in just a minute. We're going to go ahead and take a quick break, and we'll be back in just a moment. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us. And we do, of course, want to thank Senator Sessions for being generous with his time, being with us. But because he was so generous with his time and because we actually wound up going a little bit over, we're not going to go with a daily dose of stupid or do any other stories today. We're just going to skip right to the chaplain's report. So let's get down to it. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps under the command of General George Washington Each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. 
It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on Tactics. Chaplain's Report today, we are going to be continuing our little excursion through the book of 1 Samuel. And you may recall that up until this point, what we have been looking at is Saul and his coronation and his basically public announcement that he's going to be king. Well, all of that has transpired now. All of that happened in the previous chapter in chapter 10. And so it is well known and it is well accepted by everyone in Israel, even if there are some scoffers and naysayers. Everybody pretty much acknowledges at this point that Saul is indeed the king of Israel and the rightful king of Israel. And so... They're all sort of looking to him. But then something happens. And this is really Saul's first test as a leader. This is the first time that he's had to actually exercise any of his responsibilities as a king in Israel. And it happens with a a region there in Israel that has been beset by an evil tyrant named Nahash. Now, Nahash is the ruler. I don't know if he's technically a king or not, or at least not in the way that we would think of it, but he's he's the leader of the Ammonites. And he's apparently a pretty spooky dude, because as the chief of the Amorites, he enters negotiations with these people that live near him in Israel, in this region of Israel, and they they go and talk to him, and they want to negotiate, and they say, you know what, basically, we already believe that you're going to beat us. We're not even going to fight for our freedom. We'll just go ahead and be your slaves if you promise not to kill us. Apparently, this guy was so terrifying that the Israelites just go to him and offer themselves and say, we'll be your servants if you just don't kill us. That's how sure they were that they were going to lose. That's how certain they were that it would be better to to go ahead and to surrender now to prevent the slaughter of them. And we don't know if there had been hostilities beforehand. It's reasonable to assume that that has taken place. There's probably already been at least a battle or two, or if nothing else, a few small skirmishes between their troops and the men of Israel. Then remember, there was no single commander of Israel's military at this time. You do have a military leader back in the days of Joshua. You do have certain people like the judges in the form of Gideon that are leading armies. But by and large, I mean, Israel's military is kind of run like a militia at this point. And they're so certain of their defeat that they just go ahead and offer themselves up to the Ammonites. And the solution to this, the condition for the surrender given by Nahash is, okay, Those are acceptable terms if everyone among you will gouge out their right eye. And what's really horrifying is that the children of Israel say, you know what, we'll think about it. And they go back and consult with their elders and the people that are running their country saying, "Uh, should we go ahead and do this? Think about that. These people are so terrified of the Ammonites. They are so scared of this guy that not only are they willing to go ahead and surrender their freedom and not even want to fight anymore, that they say that when his condition is, you have to gouge out your right eye and then I'll believe that you're sincere, they're like, maybe maybe we should do it. Like, we don't want to do it, but maybe we should go ahead and do this because of how scary this guy is and, and maybe gouging out our eyes and our children's eyes and our loved one's eyes, maybe that's at least better than all of us dying. I mean, this had to be a pretty terrifying group of people if that is what they were contemplating doing. 
And so because this crisis has come about, now we're going to see Saul's reaction to that in 1 Samuel 11, verses 5 through 7, which states, Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and he said, What is this matter that the people that they weep? So they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. Jabesh, of course, is the region that is being beset by this guy. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily, and when he heard these words, and he became very angry. But certain... Uh-oh. Sorry about that. That's the uh, the wrong passage. Uh, maybe I put it in the wrong spot here. Well, I apologize for that. Uh, so I'll just go ahead and give you the second part of that verse. Uh, this is verse 7 in that same passage. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them through the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to, this, to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell on the people that they came out as one man. A couple of really interesting things about this passage that I noticed going through it is I think, first of all, before we even get into the meat of what this passage is saying, I want to make sort of a tangential point here. That Did you notice that when this trouble is brewing, that where Saul comes from is behind the oxen, and he comes out of a field? What does that imply? What the verse is actually saying there is, Saul heard that there was some kind of commotion going on while he was plowing. So in other words, Saul, the king of this nation, is out there plowing his fields behind his oxen, just like everybody else. Just like the farmers and and ranchers and people that he was ruling over, Saul was out there tilling the soil, just like them. I find that really a testament to the kind of person that Saul is. Now, of course, we all know that that level of humility and that heart for God, unfortunately, that all kind of goes away later on in his story. But right here, right now, early King Saul, I mean, King Saul is a people's man. He, he is a man of the people, in every sense of the word. He's just out there doing his, his farm work just like everybody else in the kingdom. And I think that really speaks to the kind of unassuming character that Saul has early on in his career as king. And getting back to the main point here, I love that the way that the Bible characterizes Saul's reaction is that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him when he heard this, and he became angry. So you see, that's a cause and effect statement. That the Spirit of the Lord came on Saul, and he became very angry. Now, would Saul have become angry without the Spirit of the Lord coming on him? I don't know, maybe. But the Scripture does make it very clear that the reason he becomes very angry, the reason that he is wroth at hearing this news, is because the Spirit of God came on him in a very powerful way. Now, that's really interesting to me. Because especially with our 21st century lenses, we tend to always think of God in terms of, of love and compassion and mercy, and all of those things are true of God, don't get me wrong. But this really should come as a surprise to nobody. I mean, have, have you read the Old Testament? Have you read parts of the New Testament? God getting angry is not an altogether uncommon event. He is long-suffering, he's patient, he's merciful, but... 
it is not beyond God to get angry at people and go after them when they have deserved it, when they have earned it, when they have done something to earn his wrath, he delves it out. He's going to wait a long time, he's going to give them an opportunity to repent, but at some point, God's anger is going to be on display, and when it does, buddy, look out. And that's exactly what's going on here. The Spirit of God, the mantle of God, is coming upon Saul, and the reaction by Saul, which is appropriate, is he's just as angry as God would be at hearing this news. Now, of course, we know God already knew this, and maybe that's part of the reason that his Spirit coming on him had this effect on him. But when this happens, Saul becomes very angry. In other words, the Bible is attributing this anger as a God-like quality. Isn't that interesting? That Saul as a man is able to enhance himself and, and be made more like God by becoming very angry at this news. So a couple things that I, I wanted to really zo zoom in on. Because the Bible has a lot to say about controlling your anger. It does. I mean, you look at, for example, the book of James is a great example. You look at some of the times where people got angry and, and God was very harsh with them for being angry. So what's the difference here? And if you're looking at this passage, the difference seems to be where that anger is pointing to and what is the source of that anger. Because there are several examples in the Bible of people getting angry where they shouldn't have and, and several examples of people getting angry where it's justified. Christ gets angry many times with the Pharisees, with the, the Romans. Uh, he gets angry with different people in the Scripture all the time. And it seems as though the common thread throughout all of that is the thing that he was angry at was evil. He wasn't angry at personal slights. I mean, the man was literally murdered on a cross for crimes he didn't commit, and we never see him get angry there. Where does he get angry? When people are taking advantage of other people in the temple multiple times. Where does he get angry when the Pharisees are playing religious games and trying to, to make people feel as though that they're not religiously pure, or they're not doing the right thing, they're not living the life that God wants for them to live when they take one too many steps on the Sabbath day? That's where Christ gets angry. And we see in the Old Testament that there are times where David gets angry, where uh, multiple characters that wind up going out to war even and engage in violence are angry at something that has happened. When is that anger justified? The common thread through all of them is that they're angry at evil, not angry at a personal offense against them, not angry because of something silly or foolish or because someone has impugned my reputation or my honor. No, the time that anger is okay and actually personified right here in this verse is when some kind of evil has come about. Because you think about what Nahash has done here. This is one sadistic dude. that He has these people so under his thumb and so terrified of him that he's like, you know what, torture yourselves. And once you've done that, I'll believe that you're sincere and then you'll get the privilege of being my slaves as opposed to me just outright slaughtering all of you. I mean, that's an evil, evil dude. We don't hear about him much because he's taken care of very quickly and he's not a character that's in lots of passages of Scripture or somebody that afflicts Israel over a long period of time, but you look through some of the biblical villains, Nahash is about as bad as it gets. You'd have to rank, of course, Satan ahead of him and then maybe Pharaoh and a couple of others, but as far as just being an evil, twisted individual, Nahash 
what he's suggesting here, that, that's pretty rough. And the second that Saul hears about this, he's like, uh, no, you don't. Not to God's children, not to his chosen people. This is not something that we're going to tolerate. And in his gray an- anger, he cuts apart his own oxen and sends it to the other people and says, hey, if you are not courageous enough, if you are not willing to join this fight, then you're going to have the same thing done to your oxen. Man, I mean, that's an encouragement there. Because everybody else is so terrified of fighting that it is so scared to even stand against this guy that they're thinking maybe it would be better for us to just gouge out our own eye and gouge out the eyes of our own family and children, and that would be a better course than fighting to keep ourselves from his slavery and tyranny. And Saul says, uh, no, in fact, if you are not willing to stand against this individual, then you are going to be punished for it. And so what happens here is that it turns out, weirdly enough, that anger got the job done. Anger at these people being abused, anger at these people being taken advantage of, anger at the lack of faith in God that he was going to protect them and he would be with them if they chose to stand against Nahash. And anger gets the job done because it says in verse 7 there that they all came out as one man. In other words, they came out in a united front as one people, as one mind. They said, you know what? Saul's got a point. This is not right. It's not fair. This is not something we should do. And we should have faith that God is going to be with us and take care of us. And that if we go out to fight, then we are going to be okay. It doesn't matter how big and scary this guy is. He's not bigger and scarier than God. And so even though we usually think of anger as a negative thing, this is a time where anger, righteous anger at a legitimate injustice and evil of other people being oppressed, it bubbles up and it becomes the solution. It encourages people that when Saul gets angry, they start thinking about it. It's like, yeah, this isn't right. Why are we taking this course of action? And so it wasn't just that they all got together because they were scared of losing their oxen. The way that the Bible describes it is the hearts of the people have changed. They came out in a unified front. It wasn't just that they were conscripted or felt obligated to do this. No, the indication of the scripture is that Saul's angry response to this that comes from him by God is something that actually changed the hearts of men. That's impressive. And I think that it also helps remind us that even though we should be slow to anger, just like God's slow to anger, that we should always reserve it for only the most extreme of circumstances, there are times where evil is being done that it is time for God's people to rise up and speak out against it, and doing so will help change the heart of the people, that it will draw the other chosen, the other elect, the other members of the body of Christ to us and rally support. That's something that happened here in the Old Testament with the children of Israel. It can happen today just as easily. And so there are times where being angry at evil is actually the godly thing to do because God is furious whenever he is confronted with evil. Anger can awaken that sleeping courage in others and sort of shake them awake to the injustices of the world. This is part of the reason that that Christ acts out in a very open way when it comes to the evil that was being done in the temple. He, there's a reason for that. He saw an injustice and he saw that there were other people that just weren't seeing the injustice. They weren't taking notice of it, and he sort of jars them awake 
with this display. And so this is something that, whether you're talking Old or New Testament, is something that is actually biblically recommended. Ultimately, if we are to be imitators of God, if we're supposed to be like Him in every respect, if we're going to constantly try to reevaluate ourselves and restructure our lives based on that evaluation to be as similar to God as possible, we have to be outraged at evil. In fact, if we're apathetic towards evil or we see evil and we're just kind of like, ah, whatever, somebody else will deal with it, then we're doing the opposite. We are rebelling against God. We are not acting like he and Jesus Christ taught us to act. And so I don't think that we need to be angry all the time. I don't think that we need to be flying off the handle at every little thing that happens. But I am seeing right here in the scripture a perfect example of how imitating God sometimes means seeing evil and taking action to stop it. Being angry enough to say, no, this is not going to happen, not on my watch. That's what happened to Saul, and that's a calling that we have too. Stay the course, friends. Tactics is a production of News Radio 1440 and Cumulus Media Montgomery. Opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Cumulus Media or our business partners. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University. Location studio provided by the Dalreda Church of Christ. Copyright 2020. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.